Research Briefs podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Streveler, coming to you from the School of Engineering Education at Purdue University. The goal of Research Briefs is to expand the boundaries of engineering education research. In these podcasts, we'll speak to researchers about new theories, new methods, and new findings in engineering education research. My guest today is Dr. Justin Hess, Assistant Professor of Engineering Education at Purdue University. Justin's research area is empathy, something we need a lot of these days. So our discussion will be particularly timely. Um, I've had Justin on my list of potential podcast guests for at least a year. Um, but now as we're recording this in June 2020, again, this uh, is the perfect time to hear about this. So welcome, Justin. Thank you. And thank you for telling us about your research. Thank you, Ruth. It's an honor to be here. Um, I'm truly humbled to be alongside the prestigious company of scholars that you've talked with. Oh, well, thank you. I'm, I'm thrilled to have you. Um, so I'm lucky enough to have known you since you were a graduate student, but um, our listeners are not all that fortunate. So could you begin by giving the listeners some context about how you came to study empathy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, in our pre-recording meeting, you know, I was having a, a hard time trying to decide how far back to go. Um, I think what, what makes sense for me is to start um, thinking about being an undergraduate also at Purdue University. Where I was perfu- uh, pursuing a civil engineering degree, um, I was doing a co-op. And so um, I actually went to Arizona. I worked for a company named Opus West. Um, in 2009, so from January to June 2009. So as you might recall, the economy was not doing Mm. so well at Mm -hmm. the time. Um, So simultaneously, um, I was also slowly getting into philosophy. So these stories sort of overlap. Um, I was actually doing online classes um, and things like that. So, um, you know, the company I was working for, as I mentioned, was called Opus West. So there was a you know, hierarchical structure and the main Opus company was in Minneapolis. Um, so you sort of saw Opus East, which was primarily in, in Florida and along the coast moving up from there and Opus South, file chapter 11 bankruptcy. Um, so we sort of saw it coming our way. Um, and it was really sad seeing sort of promises that were, were broken, <laughs> I guess, to employees, people I was working alongside. And this was sort of my first foray into the, uh, the field of engineering, if you will. Um, so for me, it was a very critical experience. Um, and so I really started asking some hard questions about, you know, neoliberal capitalism, you know, my own purpose in this world, you know, how engineers relate to the environment, um, and then also how we relate to each other. So it was interesting just starting to ask these critical questions at that point, really for the first time. Um, you know, I mentioned the philosophy classes I've been taking. A lot of those aspects aren't necessarily part of engineering curricula. So, so that's why I mentioned these things sort of happening side by side. Um, 
So eventually my, my segment of Opus, Opus West, did file Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Um, it was funny. I was a cheap co-op, and uh, they needed someone doing paperwork, so I lasted longer than a lot of people, um, including someone who I lived with there. You know, sort of his his salary, you know, through paying salary to live with him, I was his source of income for a little while. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, when I came back to Purdue, rather than pursuing more co-ops, um, you know, I was just looking for a new opportunity, and that's when I got involved working with Johannes uh, Strobel as a summer undergraduate research fellow. There's a program called SURF at Purdue. Um, and so with Johannes, he had this project on indigenous ways of knowing and engineering, or what we eventually called ethno-engineering. Um, so that was sort of my first entrance into the field of engineering education. That was about 10 years ago now. Um, it's funny because I was at Purdue and I didn't even know about engineering education. Um, granted, at the time, you know, our first our program officially started in 2004, so it was still pretty new. Um, but you know, I'd had Sean Brophy as a, an instructor um, in what was at the time what was a, a different format of first year engineering. Yeah, one, engineering 106 or something like that, or 126 or. Um, 126. Correct. 126. Okay. Before that, even it was 126 or 106. And there, I think that's, there's iterations before that even. Yes. Right. And I had actually heard from Johannes at one point. Um, I forget the number, but it was a, a extra credit course, I think, like an extra single credit where you just learned about careers. So yes. I had at least seen Johannes once, but I never necessarily had a relationship with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I started working with him in 2010 in SURF and on this project of ethno-engineering. Um, and eventually that led to asking more questions, not only about how we relate to the earth, but also more specifically about how we relate to indigenous peoples and also just to each other. Um, so in working with Johannes, um, that's where I really started doing my empathy work as well. You know, after working with Johannes, as an undergraduate, he had encouraged me to pursue a PhD in engineering education, which I did. Um, and it was around that time in my first year in the program, um, we started working on some of this empathy work. Um, so he had done a prior systematic review, which showed not a lot of work on empathy or care in this field of engineering. Um, and it sort of just resonated with me. Um, so after that, we started doing a lot of work, you know, focused on this idea of relating you know, to people as engineers and, and trying to understand this phenomenon called empathy. So it's, it's always so interesting to see how people's lives develop and just this whole circle of very, almost, you almost say kind of random things that happen. You happen to meet this person or you have this experience at this particular time in history. Um, it's always so intriguing. I do want to ask a little bit about your philosophy minor because it's not that common for a civil engineering student to be interested in that. Do you want to just say a little bit about how that developed? Yeah, I remember, you know, my first philosophy class was just a general introduction to philosophy, sort of philosophy 101, where we were introduced to a number of different things. But um, we were asking questions, you know, it was the first time I saw us asking questions that didn't have clear answers. Um, 
in engineering, it was never necessarily depicted that way, although that's true for many parts of engineering as well. Um, but it was there that um, I remember learning this idea called deep ecology, um, and it's the idea of um, asking questions about you know, what worth do we assign to the earth? Does the earth have inherent worth? Um, are humans superior to the earth? Questions along those lines. Um, and, you know, juxtaposing that against my engineering experiences, um, my, uh, my emphasis in civil was an environmental. So um, even in that space, I felt like we were sort of prioritizing a lot of economic considerations. That's sort of a broad generalization. That's not true in all my classes. Um, and I, I do remember one class was actually taught by Larry Nice. It was Introduction to Sustainability, um, which was really just focused on these questions of sustainability. Um, so sort of the amalgamation of these things just got me interested in asking some of these really hard questions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think yeah. our... Oh, I'm sorry. Did I cut you off? Well, I mean, all I was going to say is I think at the time as an undergraduate, I never never even considered sort of pursuing a degree, a PhD, so a graduate degree whatsoever. Um, you know, I never, I was never necessarily even aware of you know, this career, career trajectory as being something that was possibly for me, um, you know, as a first generation student, so I didn't necessarily have that, that social capital, if you will. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, it, this this makes me relate to an experience that I had as well. I was also a first generation college student. My I, I'm the youngest in the family, so my um, siblings had gone to college, but my my parents my, actually my father only went to eighth grade, and my mother fin- did finish high school. Mm-hmm. And like you, I really didn't think about graduate school until a professor said. Oh, why don't you think about graduate school? So it's it's interesting that Johannes was that person for you. You know, it's it's really it's really cool. Yeah, um, I remember asking a, a question once, like, well, "What the heck do you do with a degree in this field?" Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. a great conversation. Um, so yes. here we are today. Here we are today. Yes. <laughs> I think from um, hearing about your background, the listeners can get a sense that. Um, you are the kind of person that would be courageous enough to tackle empathy. Um, it's an ambiguous subject. It's got a lot of philosophical roots to it, has a lot of values to it. Um, but it is a very kind of fuzzy word. It means a lot of different things to different people. Mm-hmm. Can you say how you define empathy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... You know, my initial forays into the field of empathy, you know, I did a lot of exploratory work with Johannes, um, with practicing engineers and asking them questions like this, you know, what does empathy mean to you? Um, you know, more recently, um, I've been working with Nicholas Fila, um, specifically in the space of empathic design, but him and I developed um, a four-part model of empathy um, that varies in terms of self-other orientation and cognitive and affective uh, considerations. Um, So as I say that, you can sort of imagine four quadrants, if you will. Um, And in those quadrants, I like to 
explain them sort of like this. Um, imagine self-perspective taking might be me imagining myself in your shoes. Whereas imagine other perspective taking would be me imagining you in your shoes. Um, on the affective side, on the other oriented end, um, we position this phenomenon called empathic concern. So these are general feelings of compassion sort of directed at another or others. Um, and then on the self-oriented side, um, there's this phenomenon called empathic distress. So it's the idea of sort of internalizing some feeling um, that transforms into a feeling of distress. And for Martin Hoffman, um, he's one of the individuals who I base a lot of my work on. He, he does a lot of work, the intersection of empathy and moral development. Um, for him, this aspect, empathic distress, was really critical to promoting um, pro-social and moral behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, this model sort of came out of um, engaging with the literature and also starting to look at how empathy was measured by different individuals. So in my dissertation work, um, I was trying to explore changes in empathy that resulted from an engineering ethics course. Um, so in my search, I guess, to operationalize and also measure empathy, um, I came right across the work of Mark Davis. Um, and so he's in the field of social psychology and he has an instrument called the Interpersonal Reactivity Index. It sort of aligns really nicely with the four part framing that I described earlier. Um, and so in that instrument, it measures things like perspective taking, which aligns with the other oriented cognitive side, empathic concern, which aligns with the other oriented effective side, um, et cetera. Um, so using that instrument um, and as a way, I guess, to measure empathy has been, has also been really interesting in my path. Um, of course, I don't wanna say that quantitative ways are the only ways that we should be thinking about measuring this thing. Um, but that's another area of my work that I've been working on quite a bit, um, is trying to think about how we can come up with instruments and, and assessment measures that people can use in the community um, to help them understand um, how well you know, their interventions are um, at promoting empathy. Um, and I realized we didn't necessarily talk about that in the pre-podcast meeting. Um, I guess the other thing... The other thing I did want to mention is like there's a lot of different frameworks and um, one that I did mention to you when we talked was um, by Daniel C. Batson. Um, and so Batson talks about empathy in terms of eight different ways. He suggests there are eight different phenomena that we call empathy. They're similar, but they're distinct. Um, and then author also um, Joe Walther and his team um, have put together a framework about empathy and engineering. And in that framework, they talk about empathy as a skill, an orientation, and a way of being. Um, so for them, this isn't hierarchical in their framework, but the skills dimensions align pretty closely with, with the four-part framing of empathy that I was talking to you about. Um, the orientation has to do with sort of your openness to different ways of knowing. So they have different subcomponents of that. And one is epistemological openness. Another is a commitment to values pluralism. So for me, these are sort of things that are really important for these specific empathy types that I mentioned to manifest. Uh, and then 
um, as a way of being, they talk about empathy in terms of holistic service to society and things of that nature. So just thinking about the things that you do as an engineer, being in, inherently empathic, if you will. Um, what's really interesting about that framework is it aligns really nicely with some of the, the work I did with practicing engineers early on uh, with Johannes. Um, and in a lot of the interviews, engineers seem to define empathy in terms of thinking about your work in that way is the things that you do, um, you know, being a good engineer is thinking about sustainability, for example, um, and these really broad things. So um, it's really interesting even seeing alignment between those ways of operationalizing empathy. Um, in short, this long narrative, uh, I guess, just shows how complex of a phenomenon there, this is. And like, there's a lot of different frameworks and ways of thinking about it. Um, and for that, maybe I'll, I'll pause. Okay. Well, I have two questions that really pop up. Um, and again, they're not questions I asked you before. I should let the listeners know that uh, before we do a podcast, we always do a pre-planning meeting. So we're, we're going to mm -hmm. refer to that a couple of times so <laughs> people will know what we're talking about. Um, two things really popped up. When you talked about empathic distress... That is something that I see now come to the fore so much with all the protests about George Floyd's killing and people imagining not only what his family feels like, but what black people may feel like mm -hmm. being fearful of the police. And I just, I think we see empathic distress kind of writ large right now. Um, and so the question about that is, you had talked about that as a way of moral or linked to moral development. In this moment of time, do you see some opportunities for us to grow morally out of this empathic distress that seems to be so prevalent? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, at the start, even before we started recording today, we were talking about how, <laughs> how stressful things are in the world right now. Um, but I think you're spot on. I think it's an opportunity for growth. You know, if we continue doing things like like listening to different perspectives, um, you know, checking our own values, um, and also engaging with others. And that, that's one thing that I think has been really good, but also potentially really stressful is a lot of people are actively engaging with difference right now. Um, you know, I'm, I'm from Indiana. I have <laughs> a lot of friends who are pretty conservative and, and that's been very stressful for me too. And so one thing I've been doing more lately, though, is speaking up and trying to be more active. Um, and I think that's important for everyone to think about, because when we talk about empathy and also ethics and, and moral development, um, for me, ethics is really about engaging with difference, different ways of knowing. Um, in ethics, it's you know, really unlikely that you're ever going to have a right answer. That's uncomfortable for engineers to hear. You know, we have codes and things, but they're imperfect. Um, we're constantly changing them. And the only way we can get better as a community is engaging others. Um, but your question was about empathic distress. 
I mean, as you were talking, I was thinking about this, this corollary idea called emotion regulation. You know, some people, how they define empathy, emotion regulation is part of it. That's not part of the four part framework I mentioned to you, but um, this is actually in Hoffman's framework. It's the idea that some level of distress is really important for promoting behavior. So if you have zero distress, if you're not distressed at all, you're not going to do anything. Um, then there's a sweet spot, if you will. And then if you have too much distress, um, you're going to start focusing on yourself. You'll stop focusing on others. You'll stop empathizing. Um, so this idea of emotion regulation sort of sets that threshold, um, a threshold that sort of defines your ability to engage with difference, especially during stressful times like right now. Um, so I know, um, like we've been talking about caring for the self you know, mm-hmm. in the pre-podcast meeting, we were talking about suggestions and mm-hmm. that was one that came up. Um, the idea of focusing on yourself and, and taking care of yourself is really important um, because if you're not, then you're not going to be engaging in this ethical conversations, these political conversations that are really hard and are really uncomfortable, but also are really important for us we're going to collectively move forward. Yeah, yeah. And and that idea of uh, almost kind of a U-shaped curve where if you are have no stress at all, you just kind of, I don't care. But if the stress is too high, then it, that's not productive either. Um, that's, that's There's a very similar curve when it comes to learning new information. Um, so yes, trying to keep oneself from that high, high, high stress area is, is really important. (laughs) The second question I had was, as you're thinking about the four quadrants, do you think there's a kind of a starting point in the quadrants? I mean, they're all working together, but... My hypothesis might be that you have to try to understand yourself before you can understand others. So maybe that self corner might be a place that has to start. It, do you, am I like off base or do you, what, what do you think about that? No, I think it's, it's probably true, right? We're all reasoning from our own perspective and based on that, you know, and also from our own feelings, or <laughs> feeling from our own feelings. Um, so I would agree that that's probably the starting point. Um, but to your question, like I like to think about these things informing each other, but I also mentioned at the outset that these are in theory distinctly measurable. Um, and so the example I like to give uh, is thinking about perspective taking. Imagine other perspective taking. Like some people are very, very good at understanding others' perspectives, but that doesn't necessarily translate to concern or distress or necessarily even imagining yourself. And, and in this domain, we also think of sociopaths, you know, who are very, very good at doing this type of work. Um, but, you know, in my work with Nicholas Fila, um, We've done a number of things in the empathic design space. So part of our work has extrapolated techniques, empathic techniques that students use in design that seem to resemble empathy or might relate to these four types that I mentioned. Um, so we've done a few studies in that space. Um, the first was with service learning students. Um, 
and I, and I just mentioned that as context because in the second, we were looking at students doing a fecal lab design protocol. So they were um, thinking about gum disease and dental hygiene. Uh, so we called the students engaging in design in a non-immersive setting. And also they were alone versus in the service learning context. They're interacting with users who are young children with disabilities, and they're also doing it in a team setting. Um, anyways, in this non-immersive context, we saw a lot of techniques that we labeled as empathic manipulation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it was the idea of like manipulating your user to get them to do what you want them to do as an engineer. So this doesn't necessarily connect back to the affective side. And please don't mistake me. I'm not calling these students sociopaths. I was just saying <laughs> yes, it's really yes. interesting. <laughs> yes. Um, yes sort of seeing the affective side missing. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, yeah, go ahead. You know, I was just, I was just going to say, we, we all know of those people, we might call them sweet talkers or, you know, the people that know how to say the right things to get people to react a particular way. Um, But again, they're not doing it out of caring. Yeah. They're doing it out of, what can how can i get my way by exactly manipulating your emotions personal yeah. gain mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so yeah, um, I, sorry i was no, gonna no. give one more example um because this one it, it still sticks with me for this to this day but in an in interview and practicing engineers there's an individual who worked I want to keep their affiliation anonymous, I guess, but they had global interactions, if you will, and military implications. Um, So for them, they really harked on this idea of strategy. So empathy is really important for strategy. So in terms of trying to, you know, be successful in war tactics, if you will. um, And that still sits with me because I don't, I don't think that's incorrect. Like empathy does involve perspective taking. That's part of the model. But even just thinking about that, that's why I always try to emphasize, you know, even if you focus on these discrete types, they do go together. Ideally, if we're talking about empathy, they all go together and they inform concern, care, and also distress. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. I guess even probably Sun Tzu was trying to be empathetic, right? <laughs> yeah. That's what I was thinking of as I said that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> So um, I wanted to switch now to thinking about how you tackled this very complex, amorphous subject of empathy. What were some of the tactics and strategies you used to Mm -hmm. help yourself make sense of this? Yeah, this this question is a nice transition to to the example from the example I just gave. because I think that was sitting with me. Um, you know, I did the three paper dissertations. So, so these interviews with practicing engineers, they're part of my dissertation, but um, the final chapter had to do with an ethics class. So it was around this time that I started serving as um, a teaching assistant for Andrew Brightman in the School of Biomedical Engineering. And I was on a project um, with Carlos Zoltowski, uh, Matthew Crane and Lorraine Kissel, uh, Kisselberg, and also Jonathan Beaver, um, at that time, he was a postdoc, or maybe he was still a TA. Um, anyways, um, so working with that team is where I started to ask questions about developing empathy, um, and also 
Andrew and Jonathan had a framework called reflexive principalism. Um, so I was doing a lot of mental work, if you will, trying to think about how empathy fits in to this ethical framework called reflexive principalism. Um, and even building on Martin Hoffman's framework, like for him, empathy serves as the link between justice and care. Um, and then there's there's sort of other frameworks that are you empathy is key to ethics, but you know, in different ways. Um, so I started asking hard questions about how that fits in this framework. That wasn't necessarily something they were emphasizing from the outset. Um, and it was really clear for me where perspective taking fit in, um, in terms of defining the principles. So this framework called reflexive principalism has, uh, you define four normative ethical principles and use those to uh, guide your decision-making in, in complex engineering encounters. Um, I mean, for me, if, if you're not thinking about stakeholder perspectives, or you're not even more ideally engaging stakeholders, um, it's really hard to be sure that their perspectives are going to be accurately portrayed in this framework, if at all. Um, so in my dissertation, I eventually landed on a focus on perspective taking, but even this four-part model came out of this work because I was really uncomfortable thinking about the uh, engineer example that I gave you, um, not having the affect there. And so the four-part model itself sort of came out of this work, um, as well as my work with Nick Fila, as I mentioned earlier. Um, but for me, um, it was a complex space, I, I guess, as, as spaces tend to be in our field. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So in terms of the interactions with various others, multiple others, and leaders in this field bring with those others, bringing their distinct perspectives. And of course, a lot of the literature outside of engineering was sort of just a, a developmental, I don't know if that's the word, right word. It was an iterative process of sort of piecing these things together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so do you find as you were trying to organize it, um, are there visuals that help you do that? Are you more of a word person? You know, I know some people like to write out paragraphs or... Um, other people like to do pictures. What kind of combination of that did you do? Or maybe something else? Yeah, I, I think I'm a visual thinker. I like to, you know, I like to graphically depict things. Um, so I use concept mapping software quite a bit. Um, you know, I think actually back to CAP, Content Assessment and Pedagogy, your course uh, mm -hmm. with Carl Smith. You know, that's where we first learned about concept mapping, the importance of it. And I, you know, I think about my experience in that course. Um, you know, I was designing a course on introduction to sustainability. Um, I had a huge complex outcome space about this idea of sustainability. And eventually, like my final product after multiple iterations was, was a three part, like there were three bubbles that fit together. It was really simple, but at the time very effective. Um, so that's sort of something you know I struggle with and I'm still struggling with. Sometimes a more parsimonious solution isn't necessarily the most accurate solution. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so you know, there's there's work I'm currently doing with with Nick Phila as well in terms of thinking about different ways of, of thinking about empathy. Um, you know, there's the conceptual four part depiction that I mentioned, but. <laughs> We've also been thinking about um, Mark Davis's functional model of empathy that has these different parts. 
um, that fit together. And, and what's really nice about that model is it, it emphasizes antecedents. So, you know, your values that you bring to an encounter, your prior knowledge, all of those things, the context itself, and how those affect interpersonal empathic processes, so, you know, between people. Mm-hmm. And in turn, those generate intrapersonal outcomes. So, for example, understanding someone else or, or perhaps feeling another way, maybe empathic distress fits there. Um, and then actual behavioral outcomes. Um, so, even thinking about these ways of depicting empathy, I guess, has been really formative for me. Um, and, you know, it's something I'm still grappling with right now. So, even the four part model, I feel like it's maybe too simple. Like, there's other aspects um, that maybe aren't well depicted in that model. There's other aspects of empathy that might be really important that are not emphasized. Um, so, it will, you know, models will. Models are never the real thing. They're just a simplification, right? Yeah, and uh, right. it's it's fun to see them develop and realize, oh, I need to tweak this part or that part or right. do away with it totally or what. Yes, that's. I find that very fun. Very very fun. Yeah. Um, but it is. Uh, it's mentally exhausting too. <laughs> so. Um, as you know, I usually like to ask as a final question advice you would have for other researchers. Um, I, I know, again, in our pre-podcast meeting, you were talking about there are a lot more empathy researchers now, which is really cool from the place that you began um, when you were just starting to do the lit search. So um, for other empathy researchers or other people tackling something really complex, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what advice would you have for them? Yeah, so I have a two-part answer, perhaps. Um, And the first is is just being open. Um, You know, as academics, it's something perhaps we struggle with from time to time, right? We think we know the answers, um, especially as you become an expert in the space. but essentially start with the assumption that you don't necessarily know the answer. In doing so, this allows you to sort of open yourself up to, again, different ways of knowing, different ways of valuing things, um, and so on and so forth. Um, so the second part, which goes with this, is, is to be critically self-reflective. Um, so this is to think about the values and the biases that you bring to encounters and how those might, you know, wrongly inform your thinking, if you will, or or perhaps just bias you. Um, So with that said, pursue opportunities to engage with people who know, you know, who have different values, who think about the world differently. Um, But simultaneously, um, you know, this connects to, to the protests and George Floyd and everything going on right now. You know, don't lose sight of the self um, because it's so important of talking about emotion regulation and empathic distress that that we're in the sweet spot, if you will. If you're overstressed, it's, it's not good for you, but it's also not good for others in the world because um, you can't do some of the important work. Um, for example, fighting racial injustice, um, which is super, super important work. So we can't have the social justice warriors, if you will, you know, not contributing to society in this way. Um, so with that, figure out ways to decompress, figure out what it is that you need to do um, to be happy, <laughs> to be calm, um, 
you know, figure out what you enjoy doing in life um, and do it. So. so is there anything you really want to say to the listeners that we haven't discussed yet? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, as I mentioned, we talked a little bit about ethics. And there's certain frameworks that connect ethics with politics. You know, even me personally, I was pretty apolitical. I think that's traditional for a lot of engineers, unfortunately. Um, you know, a successful democracy really does involve everyone speaking up and participating equally. Um, so these two things sort of go hand in hand. So find ways for your voice to be heard, you know, while simultaneously listening. So, you know, one part I said, hey, be open to different ways of knowing, but that doesn't necessarily mean not participate in the conversation. Um, so I think that's it. Well, that is a, a wonderful way of seeing how your thinking in this research is very appropriate for today and can be used. And um, I am I'm very excited to have you as a guest. So thank you very much. Ruth, thank you so much. Research Briefs is produced by the School of Engineering Education at Purdue. Thank you to Patrick Vogt for composing our theme music. A transcript of this podcast can be found by Googling Purdue Engineering Education Podcast. And please check out my blog, ruthstrevler.wordpress.com.